0: When we first moved back to the United States, I discovered what they call tabloids in the grocery store line. Are you familiar? There's the inquirer, and that's scandalous enough, but that usually reports about real people and real things. They get sued all the time, but half the time, they're right anyway. But then there's a whole other class of tabloid that is printed on paper that is barely worth the name and has grainy pictures of President Carter meeting with aliens and things like that. Have you seen this? World News, I think it's called, Daily World News, something like that. I didn't take the time to look it up. But there's a whole other kind of bottom-feeding kind of tabloid that makes stuff up. And the part that fascinated me when we first moved back to the United States is they would have these dire predictions and wild conspiracy theories that, you know, the congressman was actually a lizard king who had put on a human face and would soon lead his lizard army to destroy us all. They would mix in contemporary conspiracy theories that were just about that wild combined with some ancient prophecies, usually from Nostradamus. Are you familiar with the name Nostradamus? If you read any of his stuff, it is prophetic, but it is wildly vague, too. It speaks in lofty, exalted, prophetic language and says such incredibly vague, general things like a great one will rise in the east and bestride the beast and conquer. Well, you know, that could be the Washington Redskins or China or some South Korean pop star. There's absolutely no way of telling what Nostradamus meant, not the Bible. The Bible is stunning in its clarity and specificity. One of the most amazing prophecies, so much so that skeptical scholars tried to debunk and push the writing of this particular prophecy back, is found in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, 150 years before King Cyrus of Persia was born, Isaiah names him. And speaking with, a word from God says he is the one that is going to make sure that the foundation is laid and Jerusalem is rebuilt, 150 years before it happened. Persia was not a world power. Cyrus was a century and a half from even existing, much less reigning. And yet, here Isaiah is specifying a specific rebuilding in a specific place and calling a king who is not born by name. And it happened. For absolutely no good reason except that God motivated him to do so, Cyrus, a Persian king, did something that kings were not likely... It wasn't intelligent for them to do. He began sending his subjects, the conquered Israelites that he had inherited from the Babylonians, who he in turn had destroyed, he began sending them home. In other words, he began sending citizens, workforce, tax money, manpower, population, strength, capacity, intelligence, he began sending them home with his protection, with his treasury, with this simple mandate that makes absolutely no sense except that God had promised that that's exactly what would happen 70 years after their captivity. He said, go home and rebuild the house of your God. The God who rules, you go home and you worship him as he told you to do. So, they did. Zerubbabel was elected governor. And he went back as the civic leader, and he took with him also religious leadership from the priesthood. And the first thing they did they did when they got back some 50,000 people made the long trip home. Imagine 50,000 people traveling across the ancient world. When they arrived, they busied themselves with building the altar, and they worship there, and they welcome God's blessings, and they sing their psalms again, and they say that God is good, and worship begins, and rebuilding begins. And the temple was vitally important to Israel. It was the token, it was the visible symbol of God's presence among them. It was also the visible symbol that He mattered more than anything else in their lives. The historical record of the Bible tells us that when the foundation of the temple began to be laid, old people who remembered the first temple started crying. They could tell even then that this little bedraggled group of former slaves in captivity would not be able to rebuild the temple to the former magnificence that Solomon had built and their tears and their wails mixed with the joy and the shouts of laughter and the celebration of people who had no memory of the first temple. What mattered is that God was being worshipped and that He was being put first. And then the pressure started. You see, they had surrounding nations around them, including now the Samaritans, who know that if this nation prospers again and worships this God in this place as they once did, that would be very politically unstable for everyone around them. They've heard the stories, and some of them have memory, that this is a God who, we're, and His people are walking with them, fights their wars for them, and with no real help from anyone, makes them prosper in the land, sometimes driving out the evil people around them. They don't want any part of that. So they begin doing everything in their power to discourage construction. They harass them and they intimidate them. They bribe government officials around them to make the work more difficult. Now, have any of you ever built a house or remodeled it? Wasn't that a lovely experience? Wasn't it just magnificent? A CEO gave me a good rule of thumb once. He said, on something like that, if you've never done it, triple the time and double the money and you'll be safe. And that's just about the way it normally works out. It takes three times as long, it costs twice as much, and by the time the house is built, the couple who's been working on it hate each other inside of it. Honestly, when people, when I hear that young couples in our church are building or remodeling something major in their lives, I specifically pray for them because it really is, puts a lot of tension inside a relationship. Some of you are nodding with agreement. Some of you with the sad, far off look in your eyes. Let's move on. For six years, they endured that harassment. They had come back to charred remains. They had come back to scorched land. The few people who had stayed there were the poorest and the weakest among them. They had a huge job ahead of them. And they did it in spite of opposition and pressure. But after six years of this harassment, they got tired. And they did something that everyone is prone to do in following God and following His instructions. They didn't deny what God had said. They simply delayed their obedience. Have you ever delayed your obedience to what God told you to do? Careful with that. Moments become lifetimes. Days of delay becomes years. Years of life become your destiny and... Shape the mark that you're going to have on eternity. Careful with ever delaying what God told you to do. You can look across the Bible, and the Bible never speaks of obeying God tomorrow. It says things like this. Today is the day of salvation. If today you hear His voice, listen, hear, obey. It's today. But for them, it became a tomorrow thing. So God stirred up a prophet. And he sent one of the smaller prophets who gave one of the smaller messages in the book. He was one of the very few prophets you can read about in the Old Testament who was successful. Like every prophet, he had a word of correction. Prophets are seldom sent by God to tell God's people that they're doing everything right. Prophets are there to call people back to God to ask them to think about what they're doing, to remember God's standard, to remember God's instruction, and encouraged by His love, get back to the hard, faith-filled task of doing exactly what God said. That prophet's name was Haggai. And his little book is one of the most overlooked books in the Old Testament. I want to give you time to find it if you're not familiar with it. The book is called Haggai, and if you can find the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, dial back three books, and you'll find the small, curiously named book of Haggai. There's Matthew, and then going back, you'll find Malachi going back another book you'll find Zechariah and then you'll find probably in only two or three pages the little book of Haggai sent to these people who have not denied what God has told them they've simply delayed doing what he said here's what he told them in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month see the specificity the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah that's the civic leader and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest that's the spiritual leader Thus says the Lord of hosts these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord You ever say that to God It's not a good time Let me tell you what the book's about. The book is about putting God first. They, with completely understandable reasons, have said it's time under these circumstances with the pressure against us, with our small number, with no wall around us, with no military protection for us except the edict of a king who we left far behind. Isn't a good time to put him first? We've got houses to build. We have kids to feed. We have families to look after. We're not saying we won't. We're saying it's not a good time. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Here comes the word of correction. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Sometimes a question is all you need to get the point. This should have been one of those times. God says, I hear people saying for 10 years now, it's not time to rebuild my house. Let me ask you this, is it time for your house to expand? Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? In other words, they had probably brought fine wood and paneled their homes. They're well past survival, they've moved into comfort. What they've done to put it in plain language is they've frozen their giving to increase their standard of living. You ever do that? It's very easy to do. These people have good reason to delay obedience to God in the hard work of giving money, of going into the forest, of felling trees, of donating both their finances and their time to the work of God. There's good reason to say it's not time to put God first. There always is good reason to put God off and to put him second. Always. Speaking specifically about money, and I need to tell you, no subject I've covered with Christian audiences ever has been more resisted than when I dare to teach what the Bible says about giving. I've had notes slipped under my office door. I've received, how can I say this, scaldingly polite emails I was once denounced on YouTube, that was fun. (laughs) But if you're going to obey God in every area of your life, you need to know what the Bible says about giving from cover to cover. It's not an isolated topic. The book of Haggai is a hidden gem in the history of God's people that teaches them and calls them to stop putting God off and to stop putting Him second and to start putting Him first, but it's not an isolated topic. It's always easy to put God off. It's always easy to be in a difficult season of life and say, giving in generosity, which God commands me, it's going to have to wait. They had political, physical, military, financial, fearful reasons not to give God his place, not to be generous givers, not to rebuild his house of worship. And so will you and so will I. There's hardly ever a good time to give. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't have any money. And then your wonderful Uncle Bob breaks out 40 bucks and you're rich. And maybe your parents have taught you about giving, maybe even the radical concept of tithing where you give the first 10% to God. But when you're a kid, 40 bucks, it doesn't go as far as it used to. It doesn't really cover the very latest thing that Xbox has provided, and to take four bucks off of that, maybe give a little to missions too, get into the range of five, six, eight, ten dollars, painful, can't do it when I have a job. And then you start working and you've got a part-time job, and in my case, they're paying you a miserable five dollars an hour to tend the cash register at a lamp store. And FICA wants his piece, and who knows who else on that pay stub. They take so much already, and on top of this, with what gas cost I'm supposed to give besides? I realized this morning, reflecting on this sermon, I've been griping about the price of gas for over 20 years. It doesn't take $4. I've never liked it. If you're making five bucks an hour and it's one dollar a gallon, that's still 20% of my gross pay to buy one miserable gallon of gas. There went Tuesday while I stand next to my car at the pump. I mean, it's brutal. So you don't give and you say it's not time yet. And then you go to college. Oh, my goodness, unless your parents cover the whole thing. And even if they do, college is expensive. Have you noticed? Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. So you say, well, God certainly wouldn't have me begin to generously be a giver as Jesus told his disciples to do. We'll come to that in a moment while I'm in college. When I get my first job, and you get your first job, and unless you're one of the very, very, very special ones, you are shocked that they don't cover you up with money because you got your first job. In fact, they give you what is generally called an entry-level position, meaning everybody's on top of you, looking down on you, telling you what to do, and you're fighting for every penny you can get. And it's not yet time. Then you get a real job. Now, by this time, maybe with what little money you've earned and the car you've been able to afford, maybe now you're starting to date. And oh my goodness gracious, is dating expensive and then you get married, and I discovered, you know, when we got married, we didn't own anything. I mean, I had to go to the house to buy things like Comet and Pine Sol and Windex and paper towels, and that's absolutely no fun. And there went almost two weeks of pay just getting the house set up, and you were tempted to say, it's not a good time, but now you're really, for the first time, starting to earn, maybe, if God has blessed and given to you the kind of money you thought you might expect, and then the kids show up. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm sorry to say it, because my boys are here, but good, gravy are kids expensive. They cost so much money, six-figure kind of expenses. Dad, can I go actually means, Dad, can I have... So you're shelling out the money and then finally, and this is the next season of our life that we pray for every day, they figure it out. They succeed in their own strength. They go off. They start this process all by themselves but now you're middle-aged and you're not sending nearly as much money to the kids or maybe you are and they've moved home. Don't look at your adult child. Don't want to get any families in trouble. But... They've gone and now you're middle-aged and maybe the career didn't work out quite as well as you thought it would and you don't have the five million in the bank that you thought you might. And now the kids are gone, so the expenses are lower, but now you're looking at something else that is looming straight ahead of you called retirement. And you're not stupid. You can do the math. You can feel your health fading a little bit. You're not as sharp as you used to be. You don't have the get up and go that once got you up and going. And you're frantically looking at online calculators to see just how much it'll take. A friend of mine is promising and making plans to live on dog food so that it'll all work out. (laughs) And you're caught in a tough spot because you want life expectancy, but based on your professional capabilities, you're wondering if your life expectancy, which is great, might outlive your earning capacity, which is bad. And it's still not a good time. It's never a good time. It always takes faith. That's actually the heart of it. God knew exactly where these people were, He knew their adversaries, He knew the political pressure, He knew the economic realities, He knew their weakness. He knew what little money they had. He knew what little skill and capacity they brought to the table to rebuild the house and restart the nation, a nation to live for Him. So after ten years of them freezing their giving to secure their standard of living, He sent a prophet to tell them. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts Consider your ways. What's God telling them? Think about the outcome. You've made what you think is a reasonable choice to put me in second place. My work, my house, my worship has taken a back seat to your security, to your safety, to your own homes while my house lies in ruins. Now, think it over. You've been living that way now for 10 years. Consider your ways. You see, Dr. Phil's made a fortune, but he wasn't the first to say, how's that working out for you? That's what God is saying in Haggai. You've worn yourself out trying to gather up food, trying to clothe yourselves, trying to drink but it's not working out. You drink and you never have enough. You put on clothes but nobody stays warm. You earn money and it seems to disappear into a bag that has holes in it. Consider your ways. God is inviting them with this stern but loving word to think about it and to put him first. And cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the idea that God comes first in every area of life runs across everything that God has told us. Please do not make the categorical mistake of saying that this does not apply to you because this is in the Old Testament and we are no longer building a temple. You're exactly right. But God and His work always come first in the heart of His people. And if they don't, He will invite them to consider their ways and realize that it never works out. That both things are true. There is never a good time to give. But if you give in faith... It will work out, and if you don't, it never will work out. Listen to Jesus talk to his disciples about this in Matthew 6, please. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus in verses 19 to 24 specifically says, don't store your treasure on earth, store it up in heaven. Everything you store up on earth, all the wealth you accumulate on earth will be taken from you. Only the things you give to God that you place and store in heaven will outlast you. The point of that teaching is in verse 24 no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here it is you cannot serve God in money. The people that Haggai addressed stood at a crossroads under great financial strain and chose to trust money, chose to be comfortable at home. They made a mistake. Here's the voice of Jesus, many years after Haggai tried to correct God's people. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Do not Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, in other words, people who do not know God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here's the priority instruction. Here's the word for disciples of Jesus. Verse 33, will you read it with me? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Who comes first? God, always. In which area? In every area. In this specific instance, both Haggai and Jesus are talking, make no mistake about it, are talking about money. He closes by saying, don't be worried about tomorrow. Every day has enough trouble of its own. You serve, you trust, you give, you work for God today. Seek his kingdom first in all the things that concern you, all the things that are wor- you're worried about, all the good, legitimate, earthly reasons that you have not to put God first, God will take care of those things for you. Let's go back to Haggai. So God tells them first, consider your ways. It's not working out. Winston Churchill, the great British statesman, said it well. He said, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. That's what Haggai, and that's what the voice of God through his messenger Haggai is inviting the people of Israel to do. Consider your ways, look at what it's got you, and tell me if it's worked out. And it doesn't. The burden of the first chapter of Haggai is simply this. If God doesn't get first place in our lives we lose. God never does, we do. God will be glorified when His people consider His ways, hear His voice, and do what He says. What does God want? He wants them to get started again. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I want to be famous. I want people to visibly know by your behavior, by your giving, by your working, by your craftsmanship, by the time you take away from your families and from your work to build this place of worship for me, I want people to see my glory in that choice. That idea, again, runs all the way across the Bible. And Haggai is one of the very few prophets in the Old Testament who has a good reception. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. This is what their bad priorities have got them. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. You see the word picture there? You're bringing it home to the place where you seek safety and comfort, and you're piling it together as best you can, and God is reaching down, and and it's gone that quickly. Why? Because these are his people that he loves, that he's talking to, and please hear me, church, in Haggai, in Genesis, all the way to Revelation, one of the fundamental truths of Scripture is that God will not tolerate idolatry in the lives of his people. Whatever you trust, whatever you love, whatever you seek more than Him, He will not allow you for long the pleasure of enjoying and trusting that false God. He will take the pleasure from it to draw your heart back to Him. Not because He hates you, not because He's harsh, but because He loves you. And He would not have you serve the master of money. All your life, God will call to you and money will call to you saying, You can trust me, and it's vitally important that you make the right choice. Verse 9. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called a drought on the land, the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. It's not working out. It won't work out. I will make it so. That's God's warning. Consider your ways then and correct them. Verse 8, go back up, bring the wood, build the house, seek me first. And you'll hardly ever see this in the Old Testament, the people listen. Look at the end of verse 12 and help me disca- and discover with me what their response is. They hear the words of the Hag- Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the last sentence of verse 12 says what? The people people feared the Lord, they reverenced him. Fear means reverence. It means awe. It means a heart that bends in humility and obedience to do what God says. They have been filled with fear that their lives will not work out if they don't put themselves in first place. Now they hear God's voice saying, change your ways, consider what you've been doing, look at what it's gotten for you, And come back to me and put me first again. They hear it and their heart is changed. They reverence the Lord and they get right back to it. I've seen that dynamic in God's people. In every country I've had the privilege of opening the Bible. And I'll tell you something curious about that. And it has to do with the master and how easy it is to trust money. When I tell you that I teach about money, I don't teach about it often. In fact, if you've only been attending this church for eight or nine months, this is the first time you've heard me specifically address it from Scripture. I looked, I talk about it less than 5% of the time. That's far less than Jesus talked about it. That probably should correct my ratio if I'm paying attention to the things He's paying attention to. But I've noticed this. I've addressed very well-to-do audiences, frankly, sometimes in Latin America, far wealthier people than I've ever met in the United States. And I've also been in congregations meeting in adobe houses with a bare light bulb to illuminate the whole tiny church, knowing that I'm addressing subsistence farmers with the second grade education, some of them functionally illiterate. And my responsibility by the pastor's invitation is to teach these people what the Bible says about giving. And I realized that the clothes I'm wearing, simple as they are, represent about six weeks worth of this family's income. And I said to a godly missionary, hey, listen, I, I know what the Bible says and I believe it and I've been practicing it, but could it be that maybe they're too poor to give? And he said, no, Bruce, they're too poor not to. That made all the difference. Haggai is not promising, nor is Jesus promising, that they'll be wealthy and healthy. He is promising that their father, who knows their needs, will provide for them. That's why he says, trust me. Give. Be generous. Grow in your generosity. As I raise your income, you grow in your giving. Keep trusting me. Keep stretching. Keep leaving room for me to act and for me to have to show up so that you'll know it's me and you haven't done it all by yourself. That message is far more resisted in my experience among the upper middle class and the wealthy than it ever has been among the poor. Now, why is that? Because Ecclesiastes... Says that whoever loves money will never have enough of it. Whoever whoever loves income will never be satisfied with whatever he has of it. Money has a way of wrapping itself around your life and around your heart and calling you to love it. And that's what Haggai and Jesus and every other portion of scripture that ever mentions money wants to set you free from. God wants first place. And his assurance comes in the end of the book. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Their response in verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the second chapter, God will tell them again in verse 4, work for I am with you. In verse 19, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. The prophecy is very specific. People heard God's message and put a stake in the ground. They realized that they had been disobeying God and they said, from this day forward, we're changing our ways. We're willingly dropping back into second place so that God can have first place and he can bless us. And God says, from this day forward, even though nothing has changed... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day I will bless you. God says nothing has changed about your life the day you decided this, but I am with you, and I am going to bless you from this day forward. If you'll indulge me, and you have very seldom heard this from me, I want to be as practical as I can because I know this is such a new and for some of you radical concept. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to talk to you about how I'm teaching my own sons to give. It's what my parents taught me. I'm teaching them, first of all, to make this as practical as I can and how to put God first with your finances. I'm heeding the wisdom of both Proverbs and 1 Corinthians and teaching them to do it first. To take a generous portion from whatever they've been given as soon as they start working and have income of their own, in addition to those little gifts that sometimes come into their lives, to give God His place first. And there will be always a question of tithing. Someone will say, we're not under the law. You're right, we're not under the law, we're above it. God is calling His people always, especially the disciples of Jesus, to be radically generous. And whatever percentage that means for you, where you start to feel it and you start to stretch, at least begin there. I'm teaching my kids, since the tithe existed before the law of Moses, the New Testament never mentions a specific percentage, but it talks about sacrificial giving where people give themselves first to the Lord and then give, according to 2 Corinthians, even out of deep poverty. Start with a tithe. If you, if you make $100, give God 10 Because my mother taught me something, and I found it to be true. She said, Bruce, 90% with God's blessing is a lot better than 100% without it. I found that to be true. I'm telling them to be regular about it, to do it immediately, because if you put it off, you'll fall into the error of the people who Haggai addressed There will always be a reason to say this is not a good week. This is not a good pay period to do that. And from those choices a lifetime is built. From those choices all your treasure stays on earth. None of your treasure goes to heaven and you find out in eternity that Jesus gave you much and expected a great deal of it back from you for God's kingdom, for His purposes and you held on to almost all of it. I'd love to spare my boys that kind of discovery. I'm being as practical as I can. Aside from knowing that Jesus is their Savior and how to hear the Word of God from Scripture and talk to their Heavenly Father in prayer in terms of their spiritual habits, nothing matters more to me as their Father than to teach them to get this right. I saw my parents do this when I was a child, sometimes right to the point of if we do this, we're not sure how the rest of the month is going to work out, and it has never failed. So you're talking about your own giving a great deal. I have no choice. It's the only giving story I'm familiar with. I don't know what anybody in this church does. It's not my business. It's between you and the Lord. I will tell you this, in this church and every other, I'm assured by every study I can find that the twenty eighty rule applies and 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. And that tells me that a great number of God's people can read this week after week and not take God seriously and never get started and never discover the amazing provision where God steps in and says, here, I got you. How does he do that? He does it in all kinds of ways. He's given me income I don't deserve, gifts I didn't expect. He's also taught me to live with less. He's also made things last far longer than they actually should. To the point that my friends are sometimes amazed. You still have that? Oh yeah, it's great. And it doesn't wear out. Why does God do that? Because he knows what I need and he will provide one way or the other and he has all my life. And whether I ever know about it or not, I would like that blessing for you. Much more importantly, your heavenly father would like that blessing for you. See, because when you put him first and you give consistently, I do it automatically now. I resisted that idea, but now it's just automatically withdrawn. And that helps me before I get my hands around it or the hot water heater breaks or the kid crashes the car or the dentist has bad news or whatever it is. When I put him first, and there have been countless occasions that I could tell you, where we had real needs, got to have it, housing, vehicle, food kind of needs. But when you put him first, it relieves all the pressure because then when you're surprised by that expense, then when you're surprised by that trouble, you have the great privilege of turning to your father and saying, what are you going to do? I heard your voice. I put you first. Now what? He's never, ever failed me, and he won't. How's retirement going to work out? I don't actually know. How are two kids getting through college? I'm not completely entirely sure. Life is fragile and life is hard, but I know this. God is good and faithful. And the other thing my mother said is also true. You cannot outgive God. He will not betray your faith. You will not be disappointed by trusting Him. So my invitation to you is to hear the word of God from Haggai and from Jesus and to take the same practical action that the people did. They put a line down in the ground and they said, we heard it, we considered our ways, we decided God was right, we decided it wasn't working out, we decided he wins first place because when he doesn't have first place, we lose. So starting today, in practical ways, he's getting first place. That's my invitation to you. And I'd invite you to go to God in prayer with me right now. How about it? Are you giving in a way that you miss it? Are you giving in a way where God has to show up? If you're troubled by the legalism of the tithe, don't worry about it. Begin somewhere. Go as far as your faith allows. Some of you can go well past 10%. Some of you will come short of that, but you'll begin and it'll show trust in God. That's God's invitation to you, to consider your ways and with practical, generous giving, make sure that he has first place. Again and again, he said, I am with you. Go to work, I am with you. Nothing has changed, but from this day forward, I will bless you. He will. He is not a God who disappoints His people. Old Testament, New Testament, in all of history, He can be trusted. You can be generous as He is generous. You can imitate His sacrifice and His generosity, and you will find that He will never fail you. He will provide for you every step of the way. He would love for you to have that confidence and that freedom. As your pastor, though I may never know what you decide, I would love for you to have it as well because it will bless you like nothing else on earth. It will give you confidence and peace. It will clear your conscience and it will make you turn to God in expectation when the needs come crashing in, rather in fear that despite all your efforts, you still don't have enough. Trust him, church. Trust him and give to him. Father, as we consider our ways... Give the skeptical, give the fearful, give the resentful who have been abused, perhaps, Lord, by other people with poor motives who have twisted your word and used it to enrich themselves. Comfort their hearts and make every person under the sound of your word this morning step forward with a generous, trusting heart so that you will have first place and you will be glorified so that their heart will belong to you and with their heart will follow everything you've given to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 1030 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.